Father, we thank you again that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and might it now light our lives. Would you do that by your Holy Spirit? Would you show us what it means to trust Jesus, to be his people, to be those who have been rescued, and to live in the light of that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is it then that brings a bunch of people together on a you know, relatively mild but certainly grey November day in a building like this? Um, is it because the chairs are more comfortable than at home? Probably not, I don't think. Is the coffee more drinkable? Well, that depends. Uh, is it the biscuits, the chat, the atmosphere, the heating? I'm not sure. Um, a lack of better alternatives for 10.30 on a Sunday? Well, none of those things really, if we're honest, really define why we're here, do they? Well, they shouldn't. What we need to see from Exodus chapter 19, the verses that we heard, is that God's people gather as rescued people. That is what brings God's people together. And what we're going to see is that knowing you've already been rescued changes everything. Imagine it wasn't like that. Imagine that God's people gather as those who need to prove that they're good enough to be rescued. The problem is that that is what a lot of people think Christianity is actually all about. So chapter 19 is the preparation for the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, some of the most famous words in the Bible. And what, what, what people often think is, God's people are those who try really hard to keep the Ten Commandments, and if they try hard enough, then God will accept them. But again, in these verses that we've just heard, in chapter 19, as they come to the mountains, they gather at the mountain from, uh, from which they will hear God speak the Ten Commandments and to speak his law. We hear, first of all, of the God who brought his people out of Egypt, who rescued them. He's already done that. That's what we've been seeing over the last 19 chapters. And that is where we start in verse 1, with the rescue that has already happened. <clears throat> Do you see that? It's the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt. So this is not about what you have to do in order to get rescued. I, I, imagine if it was about what you have to do in order to get rescued. We would be constantly anxious. We'd be constantly comparing ourselves with one another. We'd be worried that we're not good enough. We'd be worried that we haven't done enough. And we would be um, tempted to give up because it's too difficult. Threatened by others around us. Desperate to prove that we are okay. Now, as, we, as we've been thinking, sometimes that is actually how people approach church. Not just Christianity, but even Christians approach church and being part of God's people as if we've always got something to prove. But we need to see this morning, we have already been rescued if we're trusting Jesus. There's nothing to prove, there's nothing to fear. And like the people of God gathering at the foot of Mount Sinai in this chapter... What defines us now as we gather isn't our background, isn't our status in the eyes of the world, it isn't our nationality, it isn't the colour of our skin, our sex, our wealth, our ability to prove that we deserve to be here. 
what defines us is that if we're trusting Jesus, we have been rescued. Like the Israelites, rescued from slavery, slavery to our sin, from the judgment that we deserve. But the question then is, rescued for what? What have we been rescued for? What does the life of a rescued people look like? And that is what chapter 19 begins to answer. So if you look on the um, back of the notice sheet that you should have been given when you came in, we can see two things to see there. First of all, that as God's rescue people, we are people who are rescued for mission. Rescued for mission. So verses 1 and 2, this is exactly what God said would happen. They would be brought out of Egypt so they could worship him in the desert. Here they are, they're camped in the desert, and God, God comes and he speaks with Moses. So verse 3, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, just think for a minute. On eagle's wings, he says. How's that for a description of all that we've heard? If you've been with us over the last uh, couple of months as we've worked our way through this extraordinary book. You know, there's no mention here of the, you know, the plagues and the arguments with Pharaoh back and forth and the, you know, the blood on the doorposts and the dividing of the Red Sea, which then came crashing down on the Egyptians, chasing them and so on. From, from God's point of view, it was easy, do you see? He just, he just brought them out of Egypt. That's what he did. It was never in doubt. It was like an eagle effortlessly flying from one side of the valley to another. When the eagle decides to fly, there'll be nothing that gets in its way. It's an eagle. It's the boss in the sky. And so, you know, we look back at our lives and we see all kinds of things God has brought us through because we're here today, aren't we? God has brought us here today. Whatever state we're in, we are here because God has brought us here. And he's brought us through large-scale, small-scale things and everything in between. He's brought us here as a church. He's brought us here as individuals. And to us, as we look back on what that has involved in whatever sense we mean, you know, we think, well, at times it's been total carnage, we might think. For God, it's eagle's wings. It's never in doubt. From beginning to end, he is bringing his people to where he wants them to be. And they have been brought, he says, to himself to be his treasured possession out of all the nations. And so, you know, as we read through these, these chapters and, and much of the Old Testament, we might have this question, why this emphasis on this particular people? Why this emphasis on this Israel? Why does he appear to, to them and kind of do stuff with them, as it were, but not the rest of the world? Why is it so particularly focused on them? Why make them his treasured possession? And the answer is because the whole point of him singling them out and rescuing them in this way is so that in verse 6, they can be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, if you've been in small groups this term, maybe you might recognise that language, because we've been studying 
Peter's first letter, 1 Peter. And it has that kind of language of a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he applies it there to Christians. He applies it to the church today. So what does it mean? What are priests? What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Well, priests are people who represent God to the people and represent the people to God. At this point, the Israelite priesthood is not in place. That comes later in in, in Leviticus and, and so on. There isn't a tabernacle yet. There are no sacrifices, but the concept is here. Only it's not about something for only a few in Israel. It's something that is true in this sense of every Israelite, that their job is to represent God to the world and represent the world to God. And given what Peter says in in 1 Peter chapter 2, which you won't look at now, but some of us have been looking at in small groups, it's exactly the same idea for Christians. A holy nation, then, simply means people who've been set apart, called out of the world. But they and we are called out of the world, chosen in order to reach the world, to represent God to the world. That is the point, you see. And so this gets us to the point that we often make. That God's people, the church, is the only membership organisation that exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members. You see that? So it's a strange thing, isn't it? The church you know, it has it has a membership in the sense of you know people who belong to the church, but it, it's for the non-members. Most things that have a membership, they're, they're about the membership, aren't they? So, you know, it's, it's about the needs and preferences of those who are the members. You know, the golf club. The golf club members get to set the terms and decide how it's all going to work. It's all for them. It's, it's, well, it's, it's, you know, they're the people who get to choose because it's about them. You know, the five-a-side football club is there for its members to play better five-a-side football. That's what it's about. That's the whole point. And it's not that there is no benefit from being a member of God's people. Far from it. We, we do hugely benefit from being part of God's people. And, and God willing, we grow in faith and we become more like Jesus. But what's the point of that? The point of that is ultimately so that we may represent God to the world. Put it like this, you see. If, if church is a, you know, a, a, some kind of boat or ship, what kind of boat or ship is it? So, is it a cruise ship? If you've ever been on a, a cruise and experienced uh, that, I've never seen, I, I just see those videos that come up on Facebook where they just show you, you know, amazing sort of swimming pools in the sky and, you know, all kind of crazy stuff that you can do on a, on a cruise ship. And kind of the whole point from beginning to end of that experience is, is kind of as much comfort and pleasure as you can pack into a small space at sea for however long that happens. But the whole point is kind of luxury and comfort and you know, maxing out the pleasure, attending to every need and preference. And there's that sense of, you know, I'm paying for this, and so my needs are the ones that matter most. Do you see? That's the kind of cruise ship mentality. And actually, sometimes that is, that is what we end up thinking church ought to be in some way but God is saying no we're a kingdom of priests today we sometimes use that word priest to just apply to 
church leaders, particularly in the Church of England, actually. It's not very helpful. It's not the way the Bible talks about priests in the New Testament. It always applies that word either simply to Jesus himself, in the sense that he is our representative before God, or to the whole people of God, such that we represent God to the world. Do you see? And so we're not a cruise ship. We're not here for our own benefit. We're more like a rescue boat. We're more like a lifeboat. So the boat, you know, a lifeboat, it needs a crew to make it work, doesn't it? It needs a crew with all kinds of skills and gifts and talents to run it properly. It needs a range of skills and gifts and talents, practical gifts, leadership gifts, everything else in between, and that takes organisation and time and energy. But the purpose is not primarily the benefit of that crew, but the people in need of rescue. And it turns out every member of this lifeboat crew was also once in the position of needing to be rescued. And the rescued always become part of the rescue team. Do you see? God's people are rescued for mission. And there's a danger, you see. There's a danger that we see outreach and mission and taking the good news about Jesus to those around us in the world. We see that as a kind of optional extra for the very keen. As if kind of church level one, you know, let's do, let's sort of do, you know, Church at different levels. Church level one, basic church, that's just sort of turning up, you know, and, and um, you know, doing what we might call evangelism or, or, or sharing our faith or even like really crazy things like moving overseas to go and tell people about Jesus. You know, that's kind of, that's church level seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, right up the top. And then we kind of think, you know, but church level one, well, that's still church, isn't it? At least, at least it's sort of there. It's still church, it's good enough for me. I'll just do that. Do you see? But actually, if, we, if that is the, our kind of mentality, we're, we're misunderstanding what church is, what God's people are, that we're rescued for mission. That is our new identity as those who represent God to the world. That is what we're here for. Now, actually, that, what we then need to see is, well, of course, we then individually take part in that mission to the world in different ways, so again, we're all part of the rescue boat team, but we have different parts to play in making that happen. So, you know, there will be some people who talk to their friends really articulately and clearly and, and just love answering people's questions and are confidently doing that. Um, some people will be great inviters, bringing their friends to events and services. We heard I and Arco at the vision evening, if you were with us then, um, talking about um, doing that. Um, some people will be seriously considering, you know, how can I give up more of my time and energy to, and move to a place where there is a real need for people to share their faith? And, you know, we've got our mission partners that we support and people there who, who once were part of a church like this. And thought, actually, you know, God is at work in my life and I want to take that good news to those who haven't heard about it. And that's caused them to now be in the position that they're in, uh, wherever it is, both in the UK and overseas. And around all of that, all of God's people, as the crew of the rescue boat, all of God's people are going to be praying and, and concerned for this mission. Again, because it's not just a sort of extra thing for the Keenies, it is what we're all involved with in different ways, representing God to the world. Now, in the rest of the chapter, we see a slightly different focus. 
for our rescue. We're going to move on to think about how we're rescued for relationship, as we'll see in a moment. And, and, and probably if we were setting out our thinking logically about our relationship with God and mission, we'd probably put relationship with God before mission. You know, living for Jesus and sharing his good news. That is our church kind of vision statement. And you can see it's very, it's very natural to think about relationship with God, I've got a relationship with God, and then I go and uh, make him known to others. But here, Moses writing this causes us to look at mission first, which is a reminder, as we come to think now about relationship with God as his rescued people, all of it, and knowing God better, it's always about the purpose of reaching the world. Okay, so rescued for mission, and then secondly, rescued for relationship from the remaining verses in the chapter. And what follows in verses 7 to 25 is essentially a lot of two things. It's a lot of stay away and a lot of draw near. Come near. Stay away, come near. So it has that kind of feel. I don't, this is, I don't recommend this, but I, if, if you get in a car and you put your foot on both the accelerator and the brake at the same time, as hard as you can, it's, it's like, oh, are we going forwards or are we going back? Are we going forwards or are we going back? Not a very good idea. But it just has that slight feel to it. Because on the one hand, God is doing two things at the same time. He's saying, stay away, I am holy, draw near, I want to know you. Now, how does that all come together? Well, we need to look more closely. You see, on the one hand, as God prepares to speak to his people, they're told, well, there needs to be consecrating and washing, verse 10. There are limits, verse 12. Thus far and no further, or you will die. Do not go up the mountain. Do not touch the, do not touch the mountain, or you will die. And it's smoke and clouds and thunder and lightning and loud trumpet blasts and God speaking in thunder. And verse 21, he says to Moses, go, go and warn the people you know, we've got these limits, but go and warn the people again not to break through the limits that you've set. And Moses is sort of saying, oh, it's fine, verse 23. You know, you've already told us that. They know about the limits. And, and God's saying, no, 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 they're not going to take that seriously. You need to remind them not to break through the limits because it is really serious. Stay away. Be afraid. God is coming. Don't mess. And yet there is another side to what is happening. At the same time, there is God coming near. He wants to speak to his people. He wants to be in relationship with them so that, verse 9, they might hear his voice and believe Moses' words. If we come back to chapter 20 at some point in the future, we hear the same thing if you just turn over the page to verse 20 in chapter 20. After the Ten Commandments, and there's a bit more about the thunder and lightning again, and Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And again, can you see in, in that verse, you've, you've actually got that accelerator and brake right there it's in the same, you know, one, one after another. Don't be afraid, fear God. Don't be afraid, fear God. Do you see? Come near, stay away. Now, in one sense, it's always like this with the God of the Bible. You, you just... You can't just come near to God and expect to be okay because of who he is. So it's like getting too close to, you know, to a nuclear power station in meltdown. I don't know if you've seen the extraordinary drama Chernobyl about uh, the 1986 disaster, the TV series that they made recently. But it has, 
has this scene which I think is loosely based on what actually happens um, with a helicopter flying over the reactor and the reactor's kind of you know in the early stages of full meltdown and there's radiation flying off all over the place and, they, they, and I think they're, they're warned the helicopter pilot is warned you can't go too close it's really serious to get that close to that amount of radiation with a helicopter it's dangerous but for whatever reason the pilot doesn't heed the warning and what you see is the, 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 the helicopter falls from the sky as a dead weight brought down by this extraordinary radiation. See, there's this sense that, you know, God is holy and, and we are not. We, we can't just stand in his presence and expect to be okay because of our sin, because we have turned our backs on him, because we've fallen short of his standards for us. We can't just say, oh, everything's going to be fine. Well, it's really serious. And yet, that is not all we have to say because at the same time as that being true, he wants us to draw near. He wants to know us despite our sin. He wants to be in relationship with us. He wants us to draw near because he has drawn near. So how do you resolve this kind of paradox? Well, we see the beginning of the answer in this chapter with Moses acting as the mediator between God and his people in these verses. So I don't know if you noticed in the reading how many times Moses goes up and down. So verse 3, he goes up. Verse 7, he comes down. Verse 8, he goes up. Verse 14, he goes down. Verse 20, he goes up. And the first thing God says is go down. Verse 21. Verse 25, he does go down. You see, he's just going up and down, up and down, up and down. He's literally a go-between. That's what he's doing. Going constantly between the people and God. So in verses 1 to 6, all of God's people are, are God's priests to the world. But here Moses is a priest to his people. He never became an official priest, but he took on a priestly role, if you like, standing between God and his people. And Christians know that the role that Moses had has been fulfilled by Jesus. So Jesus is our mediator, a better mediator who bridges the gap between us and God, who makes it possible for the God from whom we must stay away unless, you know, lest we die, it makes it possible for that God to draw near so that we know him personally and intimately. And how's that possible? Well, Jesus has died in our place. He suffered the death we deserve. It's like as if he's, he's flown the helicopter into the reactor and suffered the full consequences such that all... The radiation, if you like, has been absorbed in him. And now we have free access to God through him. I don't know if you've, maybe through work or whatever, you know, you might have special access to a, a building, a place, a person that others don't have. You know, the security pass that gets you through to the inner sanctum. There have been times um, in my life where I have stood outside Buckingham Palace. I'm sure many of us will have done this. You stand outside and you have a look and think, oh, look, look at what's going on. You've got these big gates. Can't go any further, but you can stand there and, and see it all. And we think, what's behind the walls? What are they doing behind the windows? What's, the, what's on the other side of the parade ground where they do the, you know, the, the changing of the guard? And just once, when I was a teenager... 
my dad was getting an award, and we, we were able to drive up to the gates in the car. And normally, if you, if you drove at the gates in the car, what would happen? You'd get stopped, and the armed police go, go away, you can't come in here, no, turn around, get out, go, 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 no, thus far, no further. But we had the pass that said, you can come in today. And so we drove straight through and across the parade grounds and through the archway and into the, the central quadrangle that's kind of hidden behind. And we got out of the car and having parked the car, we, we got taken into the palace and we ended up in the throne room. Extraordinary. Now, I had no right to be there. My dad got me in. That is just a tiny picture of the kind of access to God that we have through Jesus, that he gets us in, not just once, not just occasionally, but permanently. We have that access to God that we've been rescued for. In, in the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, the author spells out how much better Christians have it than the people of God here in Exodus. It's worth just reading what is said. Let's just look at this on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. You see, can you see what he's saying? You have not come to this mountain. He's talking about the Exodus chapter 19 experience of God's people. And he's saying to Christians, your experience is different. So let's go on and see what he says. He says, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Okay. But then the author says, but you, Christian people, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all people, to the, the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what is he saying? He's saying to God's people today, you don't have to go to a mountain to meet with God. You don't have to gather at the foot of a mountain. You don't have to go to particular special places because you have a better mediator who's given you access to heaven itself, which he calls Mount Zion. But he's, what he's saying is you're not just gathering at a mountain for, to sort of vaguely hear of God. You have come to God himself through Jesus and when you trust in him, by the Holy Spirit, you are with him. And so now, whenever we meet like this on a, on a Sunday, this is what we're doing as God's rescued people, hearing his voice through his word, enjoying the privilege that we have of relationship with him. What an extraordinary privilege. You know, we'll come in, in a few minutes to the Lord's Supper, and we talk about our hearts being lifted up so that by the Holy Spirit, although we're sitting here in church, we remember that actually, spiritually, we are joined to Jesus. And we have that access through what Jesus has done for us. 
we're remembering the extraordinary privilege that we have as those who trust in Jesus. And so the author to the Hebrews concludes, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. The Israelites would have been in no doubt that when God spoke on the mountain, it was a very, very serious thing with all the clouds and the trumpets and the thunder and the lightning. This is not a God you can mess with. And yet this is a God you can know deeply, personally, and intimately. So um, I love these, these words. I've shared them before. But C.S. Lewis sums up the way these two things come together in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the children are asking about Aslan, who they've just discovered is a lion. And uh, Susan says, oh, I, I, I thought Aslan was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, says Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. And he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you know what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So do you see, as we gather, that is who we are. God's rescued people in relationship with God in order to tell the world about him. We have extraordinary access to the God in whose presence we do not deserve to be, that by ourselves we cannot be in his presence. It is an extraordinary, fearful thing, and yet Jesus has died to make us right with him so that we can enjoy that intimacy and friendship with him, and then we can represent him to the world. And so let, let's go out into this week remembering the mission that he's given us, enjoying that access to him that we have, and taking our part in that rescue boat mission to reach the world. Let's pause and pray now. So, Father, we thank you for these words that, that point us to the extraordinary privilege of being those who've been rescued. We have been rescued. Our pos position with you is secure. So might we then represent you to the world and might we enjoy that relationship that Jesus has brought us into so that we can know you better day by day and we can share the good news about you with the world around us. We pray 